Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome, I'm your host, Dean Gerson. We are interviewing Brad Miller. Brad is a, a specialist endocrinologist and physician at Netcare Milk Park Hospital and Fitzdonald Gordon Medical Center. Can you hear me nicely? I can hear you with Oh, there, thank, there. You. thank you for having me. That's good. So, sorry, Dr. Brad Mowitz is a specialist endocrinologist and special physician, and uh, it's, thank you for taking out an hour of your time. We know that you're uh, very busy. How's life been uh, under corona, your practice? How's it changed at the moment? Are you still busy? Are you seeing patients? Are you back to normal? Because... Um, Many people know, I mean, that uh, isn't one of the risk factors are diabetics, which we're going to speak about today. Are people scared to come see you? I know in my practice, we've, you know, we're seeing probably about a third of the patients that we um, usually see. Yeah, yeah. So it's been um, quiet, particularly during the stage five lockdown. It was very quiet in the hospitals. Slowly things are starting to pick up. Um, but many of our chronic patients are deferring their appointments. Uh, the wards are not as full as we used to. And I think one of the major concerns is, as you said, diabetes is a risk factor, um, particularly patients who are poorly controlled. And obviously, those are the patients we'd like to give more focus to uh, at this time to make sure that their control is better. And we're not seeing them. So it has been a bit of a concern for us. Um, in terms of the other endocrine disorders, those haven't been listed as major risk factors for severe disease. So... You know, there's a little bit more room to to kind of wiggle there and to say, yes, we can postpone your appointments in the rooms. Um, but our diabetics are the ones we're most concerned about now. Can I ask why why is why, why are the diabetics uh, so concerning? And is it all diabetics or just the poorly controlled ones? Well, what we know at this stage is that the degree of control, you know, we use a test called HbA1c, which tells us what the control over the last three months has been. And um, we also use it as a target. And we've seen that patients with poorly controlled HbA1Cs are at the highest risk um, of poor outcomes. And we think there's a few reasons. Firstly, poorly controlled diabetics do have compromised immune function. So their immune systems are less able to fight off the infection. The other issue is that poorly controlled diabetics have a lot of what we call endothelial dysfunction. So the, the cells that line the blood vessels don't work normally, and it seems that the COVID virus um, is particularly, um, its main impact is in that endothelium and in causing endothelial dysfunction. So those patients at risk of endothelial dysfunction uh, suffer the most inflammation and clotting and what have you. All these things are associated with poor outcomes. When we look at the the various diabetic and endocrine society recommendations, none of them are recommending a whole lot beyond what is the recommendation for everyone. So social distancing, hand hygiene, they are saying for the diabetics that they need to know how to manage their medications on their sick days if they're not doing well. Um, and those patients that are poorly controlled should be uh, more concerned about isolating or staying home. But there hasn't been any recommendation to say everyone with diabetes needs to stay home and don't go out. Okay. And can you just tell us again briefly for your listeners, what's the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and uh, would they be equally affected that, and you check the HbA1c in both of them? 
Yeah, so type 1 diabetes is um, diabetes that's generally diagnosed in childhood or the early years, so late teens, sometimes early 20s. It's an autoimmune condition. So what happens is that the body recognizes the beta cells of the pancreas. Those are the cells that produce insulin. The body recognizes them as foreign, and the immune system attacks them and destroys those beta cells. So a patient with type 1 diabetes can't produce any insulin, and then the sugar starts to rise, and they can get all the complications of uncontrolled diabetes. That's the less common form of diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is the one that is associated predominantly with lifestyle or poor lifestyle in terms of excess calories and sedentary lifestyle, and that may be managed by tablets initially or other injectable drugs and then ultimately insulin if the sugar can't be um, controlled adequately with those therapies. We do use HbA1c for monitoring both type 1 and type 2. It's our targets. We have other ways of assessing control, but HbA1c is still the bedrock. And so we generally, for the majority of patients, would target one of less than 7%. 7% would correlate to an average sugar of approximately 8, give or take a few, um, whereas an HbA1c of 8% is about 10.2. So you can see you want to keep it low, um, below 8 if possible, the average sugar, and that would then um, afford the patient the best outcome as well and minimize all the, the target organ damage um, that we're so concerned of. Okay. And uh, what do you see in your practice more of? Do you see type 1s or type 2s? Type 2. Type two. Top 2 is far and away the most common form um, type 1 is in South Africa, it's a less common presentation. We do see it, but uh, often the pediatricians will see it a lot more. And then obviously once those patients progress into adulthood, they'll be referred to us. But worldwide, type 2 is the commonest, and, and South Africa mimics those trends. In fact, we have uh, a very high percentage of patients with type 2 diabetes in South Africa. And um, from death certificates, uh, we know that diabetes is the second leading contributor to death in South Africa once you remove trauma and what have you. Okay, thanks, Brad. We're going to take a short ad break, and then we'll come back and speak more about type 2 diabetes. This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Burson. We're speaking to Dr. Brad Merwitz today. Dr. Merwitz is a specialist physician and endocrinologist, and we are in the middle of speaking about diabetes. We've spoken about type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So you mentioned sedentary lifestyle. How do people know, well, first of all, what are the risk factors? And second of all, how do people know when to get checked for diabetes or what would be some of the symptoms? Uh, I think um, many people that have office jobs, you know, they'll know how much time they spend sitting down. And... um, Unfortunately, this kind of lifestyle has become normal for us. Uh, and it's important to emphasize that every hour that a person sits that's not broken up increases their risk factor for these kinds of things. So it's very important for someone who's sitting a lot, who uh, generally is not um, engaging in an active lifestyle, needs to break up their periods of prolonged sitting because with time this can predispose to diabetes. Now, the risk factors of diabetes uh, it will depend on how severe the sugar control or rather how poorly the sugar is controlled. But the common ones that we talk about are um, excessive thirst with excessive urination, weight loss, and fatigue. Um, and those are still far and away the commonest symptoms we see for patients with poorly controlled diabetes. Though many people will pick up diabetes on random screening. You know, they have a wellness day or they go for a vitality assessment or something like that. 
and they have a, a random sugar that's elevated, and then we'll do the formal testing to see if they've got diabetes. Um, it's also important to note that anyone with a family history of type 2 diabetes is at an increased risk of diabetes. So in those people, it's particularly important to make sure that they adopt a healthy lifestyle, that their diet is not um, rich in refined carbohydrates, that they get enough you know, fresh fruit and veggies and what have you um, and eat a sensible diet and that they do enough exercise uh, because someone with a family history is really at an increased risk. Okay, and besides, um, you said family history and what they eat and diet, how much is exercise, uh, how important is exercise in prevention? Well, you know, I often say sitting is like the new smoking Um Exercise is extremely important, uh, and we know how important, you know, it, it, we've shown how important it is to be active. Now, the recommendations for general health uh, when it comes to exercise is that we say 30 minutes five times a week, that's a, or 150 minutes a week. However you get it is um, what's required for health benefits. It doesn't mean you're going to lose weight necessarily with that, but for a healthy lifestyle, that's what we would recommend. And the type of exercise is not so important, whether it's resistance training or cardio I think for a person that's got a sedentary lifestyle, it doesn't matter what they do as long as they do something. When one wants to look at weight loss or, or training for certain events, okay, then you can get into the specifics of resistance versus cardiovascular, but it's just important to move. Uh, that's really the, you know, the underlying principle. Just move your body because, um, even things like fidgeting, you know, sitting at your desk and bouncing a leg can help to burn calories. So how much more so when one is walking or running or doing some form of formal exercise? But our target is 150 minutes a week. Unless they're doing something like high-intensity interval training, then you can get by with less exercise per day. But that really has to be um, extreme exercise then. Okay. You mentioned some of the tests that we do for uh, diabetes. What, what would mm. you do? Uh, is that blood test? Is it urine test? What would you do to diagnose a person? So diagnosis for diabetes now is based on blood tests. We can do either a random glucose test, a fasting glucose test. We can do something called a two-hour glucose tolerance test or an HbA1c. And these just look at different parameters um, insofar as sugar is concerned. So a fasting glucose, as the name implies, means you go in first thing in the morning and have a blood test done. And if the level is greater than 7 millimoles per liter, it's diabetic. Um, a random sugar with symptoms above 11 would be diabetic, and an HbA1c of more than 6.5% would be considered diabetic. We also have targets for the two-hour glucose tolerance test. That is where a person goes in fasting, has a blood test done to see their glucose, and then drinks a solution of glucose, and we measure their blood, uh, their blood sugar thereafter at one hour and two hours, and we have certain cutoffs. Um, that's probably still the most... A sensitive way of diagnosing diabetes, but it's also the one that people like the least. So we don't really use it unless the diagnosis is in doubt. In terms of urine, in the past, urine was used to diagnose diabetes. We'd look for the presence of glucose, but we now know that that can miss a number of patients with diabetes because glucose will only appear in the urine when the blood level is above 10. But we know that uh, diabetes can be even when it's lower than 10. So it's insensitive. It's, an, it's not a sensitive test, and we don't use it diagnostically. And, okay, and once a patient has been diagnosed with diabetes, well, type 1 or type 2, is that, are the investigations the same for type 1 and type 2? Yes, yeah, yeah. We use the same okay. blood test. Once, 
Okay, so once they're diagnosed, can you go a bit, talk about the treatment a bit, what you would start a type 1 diabetic on and a type 2 diabetic? Sure, so type 1 diabetes is pretty simple. It's insulin from the get-go because none of the tablets that we use will be effective in a type 1 diabetic. So we would construct a regimen for that diabetic using a combination of long-acting and short-acting insulins and try to provide them with a dosing regimen that's as physiological as possible. Um, we also have insulin pumps available. Um, at the moment in South Africa, the funders are really only paying for type 1 diabetics. And what a pump does is that it supplies a constant subcutaneous infusion, that is um, just under the skin, an infusion just under the skin of insulin, um, and that can help to maintain the normal blood glucose levels. Uh, people often think that putting on a pump means that it's like hands-free driving. It's really not. The pump requires more work than the injections do often, but it can provide the tightest control. In terms of type 2 diabetics, uh, with them we can often start off with tablets, what we call oral hypoglycemic agents, and we've got a number of different drug classes that we use. I think the commonest and most well-known one is metformin um, under the trade name glucophage, and then we add on to that from our other classes. Um, should we fail to control the glucose with the oral agents, we would then escalate to an injectable that's not insulin, um, and then finally, we would add insulin in any one of a number of ways to help control the sugar um, and to get the sugar down to our target levels. Okay, so just just to clarify, so type one diabetes, we're actually giving you insulin because you're not making insulin. Correct. And type correct. two, we're giving you type two, we're giving you medicine that's making your body more sensitive to the insulin you're producing. Exactly. So they're actually so well, there are different. So the different classes act in different ways. Uh, metformin makes your body more sensitive to the insulin that you're producing. Uh, there's another drug called pyoglitazone that does a similar thing. Then we've got drugs that help the pancreas to produce more insulin. Um, they squeeze the pancreas, as I say. Uh, and then we've got another oral agent that actually uh, makes you urinate out your, your glucose. So you expel the glucose from the body. Um, and then there's one last class of drugs. They just help the body to um, handle insulin a bit better through uh, glucose, a bit better through a number of mechanisms, either through secreting a bit more insulin and increasing insulin sensitivity, or by changing the bacteria in the gut um, to also handle glucose a bit better. So, and insulin a bit better. So, these are the way the different tablets will work. The the non-insulin injectables mimic a certain hormone that the body produces called GLP-1, and that that has a number of effects. Um, ranging from increasing insulin sensitivity to changing gut flora, helping with insulin secretion, all these kinds of things. They're actually very good drugs. They also help with weight loss. Um, unfortunately, they are more costly. And so funding is always a problem with those drugs. When a patient either can't make enough insulin or the drugs can't overcome the degree of insulin res resistance that exists in the body, um, or the pancreas just can't produce any more insulin, then we would have to add insulin for our type 2 diabetics. Uh, historically, we used to say any person that's had type 2 diabetes will eventually go on to require insulin. We now see with our new drugs that that's not always the case. And, um, you know, we've got many patients that have had diabetes for more than 20 years and are still well controlled on two oral agents because we have new good drugs. So I think okay. that's part of the problem. Yeah. Many, many, many diabetics, you know, when they diagnose type 2 diabetes, they think insulin and, you know, they, that's a bit of a terrifying thought for them, but that's not the case for the majority of type 2 diabetics nowadays. Okay. And why does the, in these type 2 diabetics, 
where they're not sensitive to insulin. Hmm. Are we going to, okay, we're going to, well, I'll ask the question and then we'll take an ad break and we'll, we'll carry on speaking about it. But I just want to speak about why the pancreas ties out or why do these type two patients need to eventually start taking insulin. So let's take a short ad break and then we'll speak about that. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday 101.9 High FM. We are live speaking to Dr. Brad Merwitz, specialist physician and endocrinologist. Brad, can we go back on to speaking about why does the pancreas tire? Why do type 2 diabetics eventually need insulin? Sure. So I think we first need to discuss what the underlying problem in type 2 diabetes is. I've alluded to it already. It's called insulin resistance. What happens with time and with weight gain is that fat gets deposited in a number of tissues in the body outside of the normal fat uh, storage areas. So instead of it just being subcutaneous, it will get deposited around the organs, in the liver, in the pancreas itself. And fat is not a metabolically inactive tissue. It actually secretes a whole host of hormones. And what the fat does is that it makes the body's tissues more insensitive to insulin. So insulin does two things in the body. The first thing is that it acts like a key for the cells, and it allows the cells to open up and um, receive glucose. The other thing insulin does is that it is anabolic. It builds tissues. In insulin resistance, the key mechanism doesn't work, but the, the tissue building mechanism does still work. So the way the body overcomes this is by making more insulin, and that way more glucose can move into the cells. It also means that people will deposit more fat and build more tissues, and that's why many people with insulin resistance may find it difficult to lose weight. Eventually, the fat gets deposited in the pancreas, and that pancreatic fat can cause inflammation. And we know that the, the inflammation around the beta cells can destroy those beta cells. Um, the high glucose can also destroy or damage those beta cells. And so the mechanism whereby the body produces insulin gets less and less or gets reduced and further reduced until eventually the body just can't produce enough insulin to overcome the insulin resistance. And at that point, uh, a type 2 diabetic would require insulin, external exogenous insulin, um, to help maintain normal uh, glucose values. Okay, and do you know what percentage of type 2 diabetics will eventually become insulin dependent? Uh, no, I couldn't say that offhand. Um, as I said, historically it, we would it, say... Yeah, so nowadays it's, it's fewer. Uh, but there, look, there are, I would say that, you know, if I'm thumb sucking from my own practice, probably about... 25% or so of the type 2 diabetics are on insulin. Um, probably more do require it, but, you know, I'm also, endocrinologists are generally situated in a different place in the, in the management of diabetics than, say, general practitioners are. So the vast majority of patients with type 2 diabetes following up at their GPs are not complicated, are early on in the course, and won't require insulin therapy. Obviously, as care becomes more complicated or the uh, the the treatment regimes become more complicated, so then they'll get up referred to diabetologists and endocrinologists. So we would see more patients, relatively speaking, requiring insulin. But I would still say that the majority of type 2 diabetics will not require insulin. Okay. And the most common drug you spoke about, uh, glucophage or metformin, is mm. there any benefit in taking it prophylactically? Can you can people can people take it? I mean, I often have patients that say I've got 
pre-diabetes or um, they're worried about diabetes. So my GP or someone just put me on on uh, metformin. Is there any benefit to yeah. being on metformin? Yeah, it's very topical at the moment. Um, many people are looking for quick fix solutions to weight gain, and as soon as there's insulin resistance diagnosed, um, would be put onto metformin. The truth is, when we look at the the evidence, there's very little evidence supporting metformin use in preventing type two diabetes. Um, we know that exercise and adopting a healthy diet are far more effective at preventing type two diabetes than metformin is. Um, so that's the the main thing to kind of stress to patients that they need to adopt a healthy lifestyle. That would be more effective than the metformin would be. We do treat some patients with pre-diabetes. Um, those patients with other cardiovascular risk factors, high cholesterol, smokers, previous cardiovascular events, they would benefit from metformin. So we do recommend treatment of those patients with glucophage. Um, though I think we do try and individualize our therapy for each person. So if you're talking on a public health level, we would just say those patients have high cardiovascular risk. They should be on um, metformin. But sometimes we do treat our, our pre-diabetic patients. You know, women, for example, with polycystic ovarian syndrome may benefit from metformin use. Uh, sometimes we can see that some patients, despite exercise and diet, are still not progressing the way we would like them to. They may benefit from metformin as well. But I think to just randomly put people onto metformin in the hope that that's going to prevent the diabetes without adjusting the lifestyle is naive and it won't work. Uh, while metformin is generally a well-tolerated medication, there are some side effects, so we don't like to put people unnecessarily onto medications. And I think it's a discussion to be had. You know, the people need to really think about what the long-term goals are here. If the long-term goals are to prevent type 2 diabetes and to maintain weight loss, then the lifestyle modifications really need to be emphasized and adopted uh, because the metformin won't give um, a person those those outcomes. You know, sometimes it's more of a psychological thing. They're on a tablet and they expect to lose weight. It makes them feel better. It makes the doctor feel better as well because now he or she feels like he's done something. So um, I, I personally don't recommend widespread metformin use unless there's really a good indication for it. Does metformin prevent any other diseases or, or problems as high as diabetes? Uh, there is some evidence that it may help prevent cancer. Um, it may help. Um, with preventing cardiovascular disease in diabetic patients, a lot of this uh, is associative rather than causative. So there are studies that are being done looking at these things. But uh, the strongest data seems to be in cancer prevention. Though it's not, it's, it's certainly not strong enough evidence to suggest that everyone takes it to prevent them getting cancer. Okay, perfect. All right. And um, so just to reiterate, there's no weight loss benefit of taking metformin uh, just it, it's, it, it's minimal. It's minimal. Um, there are some patients that will obviously get uh, more weight loss, some that will get no weight loss. You know, I often say to my patients, they can expect to get about one to two kilograms if they're just w- uh, wanting to take metformin alone. Um, but it's not it's not the most effective weight loss medication we have out there. And in fact, it's not in any of the international guidelines nor is it FDA approved for weight loss. So it's really something that shouldn't be thought of as first-line therapy for weight loss. Okay. I mean, is it dangerous if you take it? Can it make your with, – with, does it need to be taken with food? Can it make your sugar low if you take it without? No. So, so it's um, – of all the diabetic medications, it's probably the best tolerated. The main side effect people may complain of is a bit of gastrointestinal upset. So people can get a bit of a running tummy with some cramping. It's usually self-limiting. 
uh, and goes away by itself after a few weeks. But in some people, it may result in their having to stop taking it. The other thing we know is that with prolonged use, it may result in vitamin B12 deficiency, and that can cause either anemia or some neurological problems. Um, so we just watch for that. It's easily uh, fixable with vitamin B12 injections. Um, it should not by itself cause the sugar to drop uh, dangerously low. It's very rare that it causes true hypoglycemic events. So it is a, a safe medication. Okay. Can we speak a little bit about thyroid now? Um, I imagine mm. uh, your bread and butter or the most common things that you see in your practice are diabetes and, and thyroid problems. Is that correct? Yes, yeah. Thyroid is a, it's a very common condition, thyroid, actually. Uh, and as you said, probably the two most common things that I see are diabetes and thyroid. Um, hypothyroidism and underactive thyroid being more common than an overactive. The overactive thyroid disease is also relatively common. Okay, so let's speak first about underactive thyroid disease. So, hmm. first of all, what would make someone's thyroid underactive? And second of all, how would a person with an underactive thyroid present? I know a lot of people try and blame a lot of their woes on uh, thyroid <laughs> and um, underactive thyroid and everyone's searching for, you know, a quick fix or something to blame. Yeah, yeah. So, so firstly, hypothyroidism or an underactive thyroid is, as I said, it's very common. And if we're looking worldwide, the commonest cause is probably still iodine deficiency. In South Africa, iodine deficiency is not that, not that common because we have iodated salt. So most people get enough iodine in their diet. Our commonest reason we see is Hashimoto's thyroiditis. All that Hashimoto's means is that the body recognizes the thyroid as foreign and attacks it. So it's an organ-specific autoimmune condition. Uh, there's no... There's no reason to think that the immune system is not functioning normally beyond that. So many people will say to me, oh, they've got an autoimmune condition and they're worried about COVID or something else. It's important to emphasize that Hashimoto's is organ-specific. It's only the thyroid that will be affected. Um, if one goes online and searches for Hashimoto's, one will often see a litany of literature about how it's going to be implicated in gastrointestinal problems and gluten insensitivity and all sorts of things. Um, very little of that has actually been borne out in trials and studies. Uh, a lot of that is either alternative or um, anecdotal evidence. What we do know, though, is that thyroid hormone controls the basal metabolic rate, so how fast a person's body functions. Therefore, when someone has a deficiency of thyroid hormone, everything slows down. So they may experience some weight gain. They may experience cognitive fogging or just an inability to think clearly they often complain of fatigue. Uh, skin may become dry. Women may suffer menstrual irregularities. Um, in severe, long-standing forms, people can can you know may present in coma. Though that's very rare. Uh, but you, you said quite correctly that many people want to blame weight gain on the thyroid. The thyroid may cause some weight gain, but only about two percent of cases of uh, significant weight gain are related to an underlying endocrine disorder. Most of it is a combination of lifestyle and uh, genetics. So, you know, I think many people get screened. Many many people complain of fatigue nowadays, of weight gain nowadays. So there's a lot more screening for thyroid disorders being done, and therefore we're picking up a lot more people with thyroid disease. Luckily, it's it's quite easily treatable. We just give thyroid hormone replacement therapy and monitor the blood levels. And the vast majority of people, about 85% of people, will feel adequately treated on T4 replacement, that is levothyroxine, known by the trade names of 
euthyrox or L-toxin. They'll be, uh, they'll be asymptomatic on that alone. Some people may require the addition of T3 therapy. That's a, an additional thyroid hormone. That's known as tertroxin. So that's about another 15% of people. And the vast majority will have adequate symptom relief. There are still some people who will experience some combination of those symptoms despite therapy, um, and that may be quite challenging to, to manage. Um, and there are various strategies that we may use then for, for those people. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about the different, you mentioned three different thyroid hormones. You said hmm. TSH, you said T3 and T4. Can you tell us a little bit about what each of these uh, do? And what's the problem if you don't have uh, sure. one of them? So the pituitary gland, which is really the conductor of the orchestra, that's a, a small gland situated in the brain um, between the eyes. It secretes a whole host of hormones. Um, insofar as the thyroid is concerned, it makes a hormone called TSH or thyroid-stimulating hormone. As the name implies, TSH goes to the thyroid and stimulates it to make thyroid hormone predominantly what we call T4, FT4. Um, T4 is actually an inactive pro-hormone. It has to get converted to an active form, and the active form is T3. And then the T4 and the T3 will go to the body where the thyroid hormone will exert its effect to control the basal metabolic rate. In order to prevent the body from overstimulating or over-secreting, I should say, T4 and T3, there's what we call a negative feedback loop. So the T3 and T4 hormones will then be detected in the pituitary gland and higher structures, and it will further inhibit the production of TSH. So everything stays in check that way within the various reference ranges to maintain the levels as normal. So if, for example, a person has a hormone deficiency, a thyroid hormone deficiency, for whatever reason, Hashimoto's or iodine deficiency, or they've had their thyroid removed, so the gland can't, remove, can't produce T4 or T3, so there's no inhibitory feedback to the pituitary, and the pituitary will over-secrete TSH. And that's how we make the diagnosis biochemically. We see a high TSH and low T4 and low T3. When we give the thyroid hormone, we're just replacing T4 or T3 or both of them, and that feeds back into the loop, and so all the levels should be normalized. Okay, the difference between T4 and T3 clinically is uh, one can't say whether one has a deficiency of T4, T3, I'm saying under normal circumstances, because T4 functions through T3. There's a small subset of people who can't convert T4 to T3 um, well, or they, they, they convert it differently in different body tissues. And so those are the subset that would require the addition of T3 therapy. But their symptoms would be the same as anyone else with hypothyroidism. Okay, so so Hashimoto's, you would say, is the most common cause of hypothyroidism or underactive Yes, that, that, that we see here, yeah. Okay, fine. So, Lynn, uh, what, what would a person present with with the hypothyroid? Uh, so, yeah, as I said, so the commonest ones would be fatigue, weight gain, uh, cognitive foggings, you know, the mind you know, just can't think yeah. clearly or the memory is impaired. Constipation is not uncommon as well. Many people can complain of brittle hair and dry skin. Cold intolerance is a very common one. So even in summertime, they're wearing jerseys. Uh, and women may present with menstrual irregularities. Usually in these women, they have very heavy periods, uh, which may be more frequent than, than what they were previously. And often there's a family history as well. Okay. Let's talk about an overactive thyroid hmm. or hyperthyroidism. 
Right, so, so the, the commonest cause we see for hyperthyroidism is actually people taking too much thyroid hormone replacement. So that's actually the doctor's fault. We're giving too much thyroid hormone, um, and so that can make a patient toxic. There's also sometimes thyroid hormone put into over-the-counter weight loss products, or doctors are prescribing thyroid hormone to help lose weight, uh, which, while it may work, is not the healthiest way to go about losing weight. But if we take that out of the equation. So if we remove exogenous thyroid replacement, then what we see is a, there are a few common causes, the commonest being something called Graves' disease. And not because you end up in the grave, it's just named after someone, Robert Graves. Person's name, okay. That's correct, yeah. So Graves' disease is another autoimmune condition. And in this condition, the body makes an antibody. You know, when someone gets vaccinated, they make antibodies against the, the virus or the bacterium. But the body can also produce antibodies to a whole host of proteins. And sometimes these are not normal or not um, healthy antibodies. In Graves' disease, the antibody is directed against the same receptor that TSH uses to stimulate the thyroid. So the thyroid gets continuously stimulated to produce thyroid hormone. And even though the TSH will get shut down, the antibody is independent of that. and just continues to stimulate the thyroid. And so these people can come in with profound hypothyroidism or toxicosis. Typically, the presentation would be agitation and anxiety, palpitations, hair loss, weight loss, um, maybe some diarrhea. Uh, women may may stop menstruating, um, and it's just a very generally unpleasant state to be in. Uh, we have medication. We have other ways of managing Graves' disease as well. Uh, which perhaps we can get into a little bit later. Um, in terms of the other causes of Graves' disease, sometimes we'll see that a thyroid may have a nodule, which is almost always benign, that overproduces thyroid hormone, and it just continues to squirt our thyroid hormone um, independent of the TSH levels. That's pretty straightforward to treat. Sometimes the gland may have a number of these nodules, what we call a toxic multinodular goiter, and that um, often has to be surgically removed. We have to remove the thyroid gland to prevent or to stop the, the over-secretion of thyroid hormone in that case. Uh, and then lastly, we can get a condition called subacute thyroiditis. Um, this is where there may be an infection in the thyroid, usually a viral infection. And so the body recognizes that there's a viral infection in the thyroid, and the white blood cells move into the thyroid to fight the infection. While they're fighting the infection, there can be a little bit of damage caused to the gland, um, which causes leaking out of thyroid hormone into the circulation. And so the patient may become thyroid toxic. Uh, this is the easiest to treat. In the most, in the majority of cases, we do nothing and it gets better by itself. Maybe just give some anti-inflammatories to help if there's a bit of discomfort in the neck. Uh, but that generally gets better by itself. And those are probably the, the three commonest causes that we see when we take out exogenous thyroid hormone. Okay, we're going to take a short break and then we'll go back into talking about treatment of hypothyroidism. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We're privileged to be speaking to Dr. Brad Merwitz, specialist physician and endocrinologist, and we are talking about hypothyroidism at the moment. So is taking out the thyroid the easiest way to treat hypothyroidism, having operations uh, to take it out? Um, it may be the easiest, but it's not always necessary. So 
it depends on the underlying cause. So for Graves' disease, we've really got three main treatments. We can give a tablet called carbamazole. We can give radioactive iodine, or we can do surgery. Um, surgery is the least commonly used uh, modality there. We reserve surgery for specific cases, either if a patient is pregnant or they can't have one of the other therapies, uh, or they choose to have surgery. Otherwise, we, we use the first two. And depending where one finds oneself in the world, you know, each one would be considered as first-line therapy. Either one is appropriate. I personally generally like to use carbamazole first because it's suggested that 60% of people with Graves' disease will be able to get a remission with carbamazole. So what carbamazole does, firstly, is that it goes to the thyroid and prevents the thyroid from making excess thyroid hormone. It blocks thyroid hormone production. But what it also does, and we don't really understand the mechanism, is that it, it influences the immune system to reduce the production of those antibodies so that if we start a patient on a certain dose and gradually, very slowly wean it down, we may be able to get the patient off that medication and keep them off with normal thyroid function. That's our goal. Um, we can't always do that. As I said, about 40% of people won't be able to, to maintain a remission. And then we have to look at one of the other therapies. Um, radioactive iodine, uh, we use what it does is it goes into the thyroid because the thyroid gland has to use iodine to make thyroid hormone. So we radio label iodine with a very short wave radiation. That means that, um, it doesn't affect other organs in the body. And certainly our patients think that they're going to glow in the dark after taking it, but they don't have to worry about that. And what it does is it acts locally to basically it zaps the thyroid and the thyroid will stop working forever. Um, and then we replace them with thyroid hormone after that. The benefit to that is that it's a, a once-off treatment in almost all the patients, and not all, but almost all. And we know that we've sorted out the issue then and there. Uh, follow-up is easier in terms of thyroid hormone replacement. It's cheaper as well, uh, and there are fewer side effects associated. So either therapy is, is appropriate. Uh, it'll just come down to kind of patient preference uh, and doctor preferences to which one we'd go for first. That's for Graves' disease. For a multinodular goiter, if the whole gland is very big and is really overproducing thyroid hormone, the neomercosol, carbamazole won't work. We can't give enough radioactive iodine safely to affect it. Those patients will require a thyroidectomy, having the thyroid taken out. If there's a solitary nodule that's producing thyroid hormone, we can give a little bit of radioactive iodine, and only the nodule will take up the iodine because the rest of the gland is dormant from the low TSH levels, and uh, with time, the thyroid wakes up and then should start uh, working normally. So that, that uh, is also quite a, a rewarding therapy for those patients. So surgery historically was used quite extensively. We now reserve it for specific cases. Okay. I think one important thing that I want to take out of that, that people should not use thyroid tablets to lose weight. Or um, <laughs> I've, I've seen it uh, before. Yes. And, uh, yeah, if you do have any, I mean, you, you do have, I imagine, medically prescribed weight loss uh, programs, which I guess we can probably spend a whole another program on. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. So just to speak in our uh, last uh, 10 minutes or so about something else you see called osteoporosis. Now, why people think, oh, these are bones, why would an endocrinologist be dealing with bones? Yeah. So, um it's like osteoporosis has fallen into a black hole of medical therapy where it's uh, managed by many and none at the same time. So, you know, 
orthopedic surgeons may manage it. Many uh, gynecologists would manage osteoporosis as well. But there are endocrine conditions that can um, cause osteoporosis. And metabolic bone disease is called often falls under the gamut of endocrinology. So uh, many, many endocrinologists will treat osteoporosis as well. One of the common causes we see of osteoporosis is thyroid toxicosis, exothyroid hormone. Uh, but there's another common condition called hyperparathyroidism, which um, is also a cause of osteoporosis. Hyperparathyroidism means that there's an excess of parathyroid hormone. Now, parathyroid hormone, the only thing it has in common with the thyroids is that the glands that secrete it are located adjacent to the thyroid. But otherwise, they are completely distinct entities. And what they're involved with is maintaining normal calcium balance in the body. Uh, it does this by affecting a number of, of organs, but the main calcium reserve in the body uh, are the bones. And so if the body needs to mobilize calcium, it'll move it out of the bones by secreting parathyroid hormone. If the parathyroid hormone is secreted in excess, there may be excessive resorption of calcium from the bones, and um, that can predispose to osteoporosis. Uh, it's not the only cause, and of course we know that postmenopausal women are at risk of osteoporosis. Once they stop secreting or producing estrogen, they rapidly may lose bone density. So it's important to, to screen people for osteoporosis because we have good therapies available for it, and we know that hip fractures are an independent risk factor for death, so we really want to avoid these things, and the way we do this is by managing osteoporosis aggressively, uh, and ensuring that we can help to either maintain bone density levels or improve bone density levels uh, to prevent fractures. Okay, and um, I'm often I think when people hear osteoporosis, they think about women, you know, uh, uh, elderly yeah. women breaking their hips. I mean, is this? It sounds like from what you're saying that men can get osteoporosis as well. Yeah, so, you know, women do get it more commonly than men. The main reason for this is that men produce testosterone throughout their lives, and uh, a normal thing happens in a man where testosterone gets converted to estrogen, and that estrogen is protective in terms of maintaining bone density. But it's not uncommon for men to get osteoporosis as well. They may have hypogonadism, so they may not produce enough testosterone, or they may have other risk factors for it. So certainly men can get osteoporosis. Uh, and so it's something we don't want to forget about. It often is forgotten about. And we, as I said earlier, a, a hip fracture is an independent risk factor for death. We know that men that get hip fractures actually do worse than women. Uh, and more men will, more men that get a hip fracture will die than women that get a hip fracture. So it's something that is neglected, but really needs to be thought of for men. We usually start looking at it from a slightly later age, 70 years and above. We might consider doing the bone density in these men. Um, although if there are the risk factors, we would do them earlier. Uh, the treatments, the, the main difference in treatments between men and women is that in a woman, we might use a form of hormone replacement therapy with estrogen early on. In men, obviously, we wouldn't use that. In men with demonstrated hypogonadism, we may consider giving testosterone, though it's not, it's not recommended as that being the sole therapy for osteoporosis in men. But uh, in those men with a deficiency of testosterone, it, it can be a useful adjunct to, to therapy. And is it always treated with hormone, uh, hormonal therapy? What can you give to strengthen the bones? So what we have to do is we have to first characterize, is there osteoporosis or is there something called osteopenia? Osteopenia is the precursor to osteoporosis, 
we do a special kind of x-ray called a bone density scan, a DEXA scan, and that will tell us how severe the loss of bone density is. And depending on the scores, we would say this person has osteopenia or this person has osteoporosis. In osteopenia, we would use things like vitamin D. Uh, we might get some calcium along with that. Women, we might use estrogen, and then we might use testosterone um, and stop there. Unless that person has other risk factors for fracture or they have proven osteoporosis on the bone density scan, then we would use other drugs. And the drugs there are the, the main class of drugs are called bisphosphonates. These are, are drugs that affect a certain cell in the bones and prevent them from excessively resorbing the bone. What happens under normal circumstances is that bone is resorbed and laid down continuously. As we age, the resorption exceeds the deposition, and so that's how bone density is lost. This class of drugs affects the main cell that resorbs the bone, and so we hope then that bone deposition continues, and so bone density can improve or stabilize. Uh, these drugs can be given as either a daily tablet, a weekly tablet, a monthly injection, uh, or even an annual injection. We've got different forms of the drugs. Uh, and these are generally used for up to five years, at which point we want to try to get our patients off them and give them a drug holiday because there may be certain side effects associated with them. And that's still the most widely used class of drugs. We do have two other forms, uh, one of which is not registered for use in South Africa, though we can get it. This also affects that same cell, but in a slightly different way, um, and is uh, safe for use in patients with kidney failure. It's, it's a nice drug. It actually uh, seems to allow for more, more bone deposition than the bisphosphonates do. It's called denosumab or prolia. And then the last class of drugs we have in South Africa um, are parathyroid um, agonists. So it acts like parathyroid hormone. I mentioned earlier that parathyroid hormone in excess can cause osteoporosis. But what we've learned is that if we give pulsed parathyroid hormone therapy rather than a continuous elevation, we can actually improve bone density. And so we've got um, an injection called teriparatide, also known as Forteo. And uh, you give an injection every day for about 18 months to two years of this. And this is the most effective treatment we have in terms of building new bone. The problem is it's an extremely costly drug, about four and a half thousand rand a month. So naturally, the funders are not too keen to pay for it. And so we have very specific indications for use of that drug. Um, those patients with severe osteoporosis or they're unable to use the other drugs, uh, they may benefit from uh, teriparatide. Okay, we're going to take our final ad break, and then we can speak about screening for osteopenia and osteoporosis. This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to our final few minutes of Discare Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson, and we're speaking to Dr. Brad Mowitz, specialist endocrinologist. The moment we're speaking about osteoporosis. So, Brad, so who should be having these bone densitometry x-rays or the DEXA x-rays or scans, and um, when should they be having them? Well, I think the, the, the first group to mention are postmenopausal women. So, uh, women, once they've ceased menstruating and their ovarian function has kind of uh, stopped, they need to be screened for it. The current recommendations by the, the National Osteoporosis Foundation of South Africa are to screen osteoporosis, um, to screen postmenopausal women, excuse me, from the age of 65. Uh, we see many women that are screened immediately when they become postmenopausal, but there isn't really uh, good good evidence for that unless there are other risk factors. So, 
any patient with significant risk factors we may consider for screening earlier. Risk factors are heavy smoking history, uh, other autoimmune conditions, you know, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, um, patients that have had hyperparathyroidism or have got hyperparathyroidism, women with a strong family history of osteoporosis or a very small frame, uh, malnutrition, uh, people that may have had a history of anorexia nervosa in their adolescence or their uh, in, in their life at all should also be screened for it. So the general recommendations of postmenopausal women from 65 years of age and men from 70, though we may screen some people earlier if they've got other risk factors for it. Um, many women will also see their gynecologist, so the gynecologist may do the screening for them. It's not necessarily necessary to, to see an endocrinologist for the screening. Uh, you know, a GP can send someone in, and there, there are many different practices around that do uh, screening and and do good screening. You know, um, bone densitometry is not something that should be done by someone with just a, a passing interest in it, or, or it's just part of routine radiology. Really, the the scans need to be of good quality. They need to be interpreted correctly. And so there are a number of specialist radiologists who who will do bone density screening. And I would always recommend rather using those radiologists uh, because you 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 more likely to get more meaningful results. It's also important to mention that patients should, where possible, try and do subsequent bone density scans at the same place they did the first one because the machines used are not always the same and so it may be difficult to compare results from, uh, you know, center to center. So that consistency is important over there. Uh, there are other ways of measuring bone density, but those are very limited in South Africa. They're not really in our guidelines yet, so we re- rely predominantly on bone density scans uh, or what we call pathological fractures or, you know, low impact fractures. So anyone who's had a fracture um, that's from, say, standing height or a low impact fracture, they may have osteoporosis. We would consider them for, for therapy. And we may even label them as osteoporotic in the presence of a bone density scan that's not in the osteoporotic range. Once someone is fractured, they're at high risk of subsequent fractures. And so we need to treat them aggressively as well. And are these scans done yearly? Is the screening once a year? No, no. So, uh, you know, it depends on the scores, but generally speaking, we would say 18 months to two years, depending on the individual. So it is individualized, but the recommendations would usually be about 18 months to to, to 24 months. Okay. Um, Brad, we are going to take – I want to take your contact details. I mean, this hour has flown past. I can't believe – Usually, uh, sometimes, like, it feels like pulling teeth. But, uh, but, no, I'm playing, but, I'm playing, but, uh, you speak so nicely and you've conveyed all these, um, lofty concepts and medical concepts so simply for, for our listeners. So we'd love to have you back discussing on a range of other topics. But for now, if people want, uh, to get hold of you to make appointments, can you give out your contact details, please? Yes, thank you. So um, I've got rooms at both Mecca Mill Park Hospital and the Vitzdonnell Gordon Medical Center. So at, at Mill Park, it's 011-480-5834. And at Donald Gordon, it's 011-356-6040. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. And we will thank be you. posting this on our website as a podcast. Thank you, Dr. Merwitz, for joining us today and for giving of your time. And uh, thank you for all the Thank you to all the listeners. We'll be back next week. We're speaking to Dr. Michael Huth. We're having our second part of our headache um, series. So that will be next Monday, the 15th.
15th. Thank you, everybody. Stay safe and have a good, healthy week.